March 19th, 2021. You are listening to CPR, Canadian Patriot Radio. Thanks for joining us again, my friends. I am your host, Critch. And what are we doing today? We are going to open with a lawsuit uh, in Moose Job against a extended care facility. Now, I was really hoping it was because they placed uh, COVID positive people into the healthcare facility, but that's not the case. But nonetheless, it's still worth reporting because um, they weren't looking after our elderly uh, here and it resulted in a lot of them getting sick, sick, sorry. Uh, the title reads, Class Action Lawsuit Filed Against Extended Care. This was published March 10th, 2021 uh, in Discover Moose Jaw. A class action lawsuit has been filed against Extended Care and its Sask- uh, Saskatchewan locations, including Moose Jaw. A statement of claim was filed by Regina lawyer Tony Merchant on Wednesday. Two Regina families are named as plaintiffs. The lawsuit says Extended Care was negligence in breach of contract and in breach of fiduciary duty when it came to the handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. According to the statement of claim, Extended Care failed to do the following. Did not have the resources to provide ongoing medical care during an outbreak. Did not have the resources to provide safety to residents during an outbreak. Did not have the resources to provide health services during the pandemic. Did not have pre-outbreak prevention and control practices or planning and outbreak preparedness protocols and practices in place. Did not communicate COVID-19 protocols and practices for the safety of the residents. Did not have protocols and practices in place for an initial response to the pandemic. Did not meet the obligations of several acts and regulations including the public health orders and the SHA COVID-19 response guidance for long-term care facilities. Failed to address not meeting those obligations. An outbreak at the Moose Jaw Extended Care location was declared in November of 2020 after one resident and two staff members tested positive. While there were no deaths at at the Moose Jaw location due to COVID, at least 41 residents at Extended Care locations in Saskatchewan have died from COVID-19. The lawsuit also cited the 2018 and 2019 annual reports on long-term care uh, long-term care facilities including Moose Jaw Extended Care. In the 2018 report it states that, that the Moose Jaw Extended Care building needs to be replaced. There is no room for personal personal items clutter and most rooms are in shared spaces. Those same concerns came up in the 2019 report but also included crowded hallways, no emergency generator and mold issues in the tub room. The government of Saskatchewan requested an ombudsman report into extended care's handling of the pandemic. At the time of writing this, a statement of defense has not yet to be filed. So basically it sounds like, uh, particularly in the Moose Jaw one, that uh, these long-term care facilities have been run right down and then uh, when the pandemic hit, they did absolutely nothing uh, to protect their residents. If you want my honest opinion, if you want me to translate that into CPR lingo. <laughs> oh, there's a coming pandemic. Well, who cares? It's only your grandparents and my grandparents. So we're just going to keep on rocking with our shit facility and just hope for the best. Anyway, um, for me, this is kind of kind of uh, relevant because it kind of just goes to show uh, what is happening with our elderly. Um, you know, I don't think anybody really wants to go to these care homes but uh, a lot of people have no choice they can't look after themselves but I mean when you listen to some of the conditions that these people are being put under or put you know subjected to when they're in these care homes and then you have a pandemic on top of it which our elderly are the most vulnerable for um, pretty staggering that they didn't even make a, didn't even attempt to uh, to do any of this now allegedly let's say allegedly because this is going to court and let's uh, let's just not jump the gun here. But allegedly, this is what was going on. And you, and the fact that the defense hasn't responded, we've only got one side of the story. But you know, the the entire the entire uh, pandemic was handled wrong when it comes to the elderly. Like we should have been protecting them the most. Uh, we could have basically let let life go on as as normal 
and just really looked after our elderly and our those uh, people with underlying health conditions. That's what we should have done. Not this lockdown BS that we're all subjected to to this day, you know, over a year later. Um, which kind of gets me giggling because today I went for a haircut at my no mask with my no mask barber. <laughs> I like the way he approached it. He's just like, you don't need that freaking thing here. And I was like, good, because that's the same thing I say. And you're seeing a lot of people now uh, just not not having it, right? So interesting to say the least. So that's kind of what I wanted to open with because it's right close to home. Uh, and it's nice to see, even if it doesn't address, you know, maybe our suspicions that uh, north of the border that COVID positive people were being placed into care homes intentionally, like we have seen south of the line. You know, this big distraction that you're seeing with all these uh, uh, sexual uh, allegations against uh, Governor Cuomo over there in New York uh, is seriously just a distraction away from the fact that this guy killed 10,000 plus people by placing uh, COVID positive people into long term care facilities. And there's a lot of speculation that that was happening in our major urban centers here too. Now I have to say speculation because we can't prove that yet. But if any of the contributors, if any of the CPR contributors have a line on anything like that, please send it my way because I am looking to find that because I have a hunch that it was no different here. Anyway, what are we doing today? Um, we've got uh, uh, the petition for... Uh, the support of gun rights went to the House of Commons. Michelle Rempel placed, uh, actually uh, placed that in the House of Commons uh, today or yesterday. Oh, it was a while ago. And uh, so we're going to report on that. Um, we've got lots of states news. It looks, it's looking like a lot of the, um, a lot of the, uh, the voting fraud cases are actually finding ground uh, right now. Michigan, um, and uh, the. The media is guess basically getting blown apart uh, for their coverage of the um, Georgia election fraud. Uh, what else are we doing? We're going to cover the two Michaels. They are finally going to see their two day, their day in court, and uh, we got some troubling news, uh, especially here in the Scatch, that our airports could lose international designations. We're going to cover that. But anyway, that's kind of where we're going today. And then I've got a couple clips that we're going to do. So anyway, stay tuned. Uh, and we'll be right back after the intro. Conspiracy is not theory, and political corruption finds the spotlight. given rights to life, liberty, and freedom with all thy sons command.
Welcome back, everybody. Um, what I want to do now is I want to play a clip for you from J.P. Sears. He does a he does a brilliant uh, comedy piece that uh, he calls "We Lie to You News," and I'm just going to play it in its entirety because it covers uh, a lot of the stories that I was actually following. So I'm just going to let J.P. tell you exactly what's going on in some of these places. He actually believed you when you told him that. <laughs> what a bunch of idiots! <laughs> All right, Gavin. Hey, I've got to go. Got things to do. All right, bye. This freaking guy. In tonight's news, California has completely gone to hell and is now sacrificing children. And in Portland, there's been a surge of peaceful violence. All this and more in our California and Portland special report. We'll be putting a positive spin on evil people because we were never held as children. In our top story, <laughs> America's second most trusted man, St. Gavin Newsom, is being taken down by conspiracy theorists who believe he has harmed California. The Recall Gavin effort now has over 2 million signatures which is 600,000 more than they need in order to recall Newsom. In an expression of very characteristic honesty, St. Newsom said his recall is without merit and is only being done because of political reasons. Newsom, California's first used car salesman to pretend to be governor, is in good spirits and is reportedly still using the same amount of hair gel as usual. According to forensic <laughs> experts, Newsom's leadership is exactly why the Corleone family never let Fredo be in charge. Will Newsom ever get to the number one spot of America's most trusted man? We'll see. Hey, bring up a picture of America's most trusted man. Oh, no, not that picture. Um, the other one. Yeah, that's right. It's In a Dr. recent Fauci. poll on some idiot's YouTube channel, viewers were simply asked, do you trust the good doctor? With 84,000 votes cast, 94% said no. And an astounding 6% said yes. So as you can see, public trust in the good doctor has never been higher. <laughs> Back to California news. In a humanitarian effort to help save California from the last threads of freedom that threatened their communism ethos, LA has authorized the city to cut off electricity to businesses that are defying California lockdown orders. This life-saving measure will help protect California from a potential pandemic of prosperity that experts say could happen if the state were allowed to function in a free and civil way. Critics of California's two-week lockdown that's been going on for over a year cite statistics and reality as evidence against California's prolonged lockdowns. When they compare case rates in the free, non-masked, non-lockdown state of Florida, they see free Florida's case rates are not any higher than communist California's case rates. Not only are these true statistics false, but believing they'd make a difference in California policy presupposes that California's lockdown still has something to do with the virus. In hopeful <laughs> California news, it looks like California will be getting even more california as California school districts now have in their curriculum a chant to an Aztec cannibalistic murder god. Why? It'd probably be racist not to. Teachers <laughs> must lead students through a chant to the cannibalistic god. Inlock ek which means you are the other me. Charming. They'll also be chanting to another Aztec god named, however you say this. The Aztecs brutally sacrificed hundreds of thousands of people to this god. And in turn, California will be lovingly sacrificing hundreds of thousands of children in their latest freedom-based mind control mandatory opportunity. This just in! The people in power thinking of this stuff are probably relieved Epstein's still dead. You might remember last year that Epstein, pictured here on the left, committed suicide by using another man's hands to strangle himself while in his jail cell with the security cameras securely turned off. Many elites were definitely not letting out a big exhale when Jeffrey fell ill with a broken neck so their agenda of quadrupling their net worth in 2020 could continue as planned. In other news, three months after Epstein was suicided, a worldwide pandemic began. That's the chronology of that. And we at the media have an intense investigation going into the sequence of events, 
which mostly involves us looking the other way. So far, our investigation has found no correlation. Portland is in the news again, as peaceful protesters have set a federal courthouse on fire. In a very tranquil and loving way, I might add. Antifa, which the 46th president of the United States has said is just an idea, not an organization, is at it again. Our fire marshal correspondent in Portland has said, this is the first time a building has ever been set on fire by an idea. In the recent riots in <laughs> Portland, a police officer was also peacefully punched in the face. In a continued non-suspicious way of handling things, all the members of the Antifa arson team were left without worry of going to jail, except one. Why is that? Well, because they're peaceful protesters. And if you question their peaceful ways, you'll either be hit with physical violence, emotional violence, or both. And now we have a question from a viewer. Hi, JP, I watch the show every day. Is whoever's trying to take over our country using Antifa as a terrorist organization to help with the takeover? <laughs> we say probably not, because Antifa's just an idea. Don't be stupid. After the recent <laughs> violence, the mayor of Portland is asking for $2 million to refund the police. Last year, the mayor defunded the Portland police by $15 million in response to sensible demands made by screaming people with purple hair. But Portland has found that by defunding the police, surprisingly, Crime has gone up. There have been 20 homicides in Portland this year, compared to just one homicide last year at this time. Has defunding the police worked? Well, the murder rate is 20 times higher. So we say, yes, it's the politically correct thing to do. It's fact-checkingly true that defunding the police works to reduce crime. Just like how you can solve hunger by taking away people's food. That's it for today's special <laughs> report on California and Portland. Things have never been better. <laughs> or reported to you more honestly. I'm going to drink myself to sleep now. <laughs> oh, you know, sometimes you just got to step back and laugh, you know, um, because this upside down clown world that we're currently living in is just offering nothing but comedy relief. Because <laughs> when you, um, so like I told you guys, that was a guy by the name of JP Sears, and he's on Facebook, and he does these um, satirical um, <clears throat> newscasts that I've I've just he keeps me in stitches. So you find him on Facebook, you guys, and you can, you too can be laughing like me. Okay, back to the sketch news. Um, we got an article here from CTV News, and it was published March 15th, 2021, and the, uh, the title reads, Regina Saskatoon Airports Could Lose International Designation. This is by Brendan Ellis. Regina and Saskatoon's airports could lose their international designation according to documents released by Transport Canada. In an advisory circular effective January 26th, Transport Canada listed all Canadian airports that will continue to hold international designation. Regina and Saskatoon were not included on that list. Airports not listed above having the term international or INTL published in their header information and of the aeronautical product uh, and of the aeronautical products must demonstrate to the regional TCCA office no later than June 30th that they meet the requirements for designation as stated in the AC to maintain their publication as such the transport the transport Canada advisory states so let's just stop there for a minute two currently two airports that were up until this point international airports have to prove that they're international airports to transport Canada Tell me how much sense that makes to you. And, you know, honestly, I kind of, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, geez, you know, this this is it's totally by design, you know, to, to really funnel people into specific areas uh, to, to track them. It would be what is going on in the back of my mind that when I hear stupid shit like this. Anyway. Regina Airport Authority President and CEO James Bogus confirmed the move to CTV News on Monday morning. As it sits today, ourselves, Saskatoon and a number of other Canadian airports have had their international designations removed as a part of this announcement, Bogus said. 
Bogus said that while the, the airports will continue to be able to receive cross-border flights from the United States, the status of flights from other international designations is unclear. A big part of our flying in the winters is to international destinations such as Mexico, Cuba, and the Caribbean, Bogus says. But we have not received confirmation of how those types of flights will be impacted in the future. With both Regina and Saskatoon losing their international designation, that would leave the province without an international airport and without one in its capital city. However, it is possible for the uh, decision to be changed, Bogus said, that the Regina airport is in the process of trying to regain international status. We're basically working through the steps which primarily is reaching out to other agencies like Canada Border Services, the Public Health Agency of Canada, and a number of others to confirm that we meet all the requirements to be an international airport, Bogus said. That work is underway as we speak. I still, I I, I gotta go back to like, what the hell, why were two international airports stripped of this title? Where's the justification? Like there should be a statement from this agency that decided, well, by the way, we're just going to strip you of something that you used to make money doing. Airports must make their case to Transport Canada by the end of June. If an airport is not on the list, but is of the opinion that it meets all the requirements for designations as international, that airport should make a request for approval to the TCCA in accordance with the criteria in this document no no later than June 30th, 2021. The advisory states, Andrew Lemming, a VP with Skykes says they do not believe Saskatoon's airport will lose international status. In reviewing the criteria, the Saskatoon Airport Authority does not anticipate any change in the international designation as the main requirements are already met. Well, imagine that. It was international until now. International flights are not currently flying into Regina due to COVID-19 travel restrictions, Bogus says, but losing those flights in the future would impact the airport's pandemic recovery. We want to make sure our airport can get back up to full strength and the international designation is certainly a component of that. And we are going to push hard to make sure we recover that, Bogus said. Regina Wascana MP Michael Cram voiced his concern about the move in a release Monday calling it a blow to Saskatchewan air transportation infrastructure. The term international is not just an honorary title. It's a global classification system that airlines use to determine where they direct flights. The loss of this designation may mean the the charter flights and the few direct international flights still coming into Regina may be redirected to other cities, Cram said in a statement. The one ray of hope is that there is an appeal process for airports to reclaim their status. I will continue to consult with the executive of the Regina airport and fight for their interests on the committee. Now... Uh, unbeknownst to a lot of other, well, I guess most most Canadians are probably fully aware of this. If you've ever flown to uh, Regina or Saskatoon before, um, there's a very good chance if you connected at all that you actually flew to Alberta and then back to Saskatchewan. If you're coming from the east, it's the dumbest thing in the entire world. There's only specific times for direct flights, and otherwise you're flying into Calgary or Edmonton and then flying another hour and a half back home. It's so stupid. So... If they lose this, it's gonna just going to become a nightmare. Like, honestly, I could see a lot of people from where I'm from driving to Winnipeg uh, to fly out of Winnipeg, which is a four and a half hour drive. So, I don't know. Like I said, in my mind, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking this is by design. Um, it just has me thinking that it's just a more a control ta- tactic. You know, funnel people to to airports where we have the most surveillance, the most stringent uh, rules, where we can keep tabs on absolutely everybody that's what it's screaming to me of course though i am who i am and i could be 100 percent wrong <laughs> okay let's move over to the gun news as we all know there is this fascist order in council that is trying to strip us all of our legal gun ownership rights and uh, this comes to us from true north news and the title reads record petition in support of gun rights presented before the house of commons this comes to us uh, from March 11th, 2021. Cosmin Zerzda is the writer. Uh, I'm going to let Michelle Rempelt just tell you uh, how she presented this in the House, and then we will uh, comment on the article here. Madam Speaker, today I have the honour of rising and presenting e-petition 2574, which is the largest parliamentary petition in Canadian history. 
Over 230,000 Canadians have signed a petition to stop firearms violence in Canada. This petition acknowledges that firearms violence in Canada is caused by firearms that are smuggled in illegally from countries like the United States and are related to gang violence. The petition calls upon the government to recognize that law-abiding firearms owners in Canada, hunters, sports shooters, are some of the most highly vetted Canadians in the world, that the vast majority of data shows that they are not the problem when it comes to firearms violence, and they are opposed to this government's do-nothing approach to tackling the real issue. Over 230,000 Canadians stood united in asking the government for the following. To call upon the government to scrap the May 1, 2020 order and council decision related to confiscating legally owned firearms and instead pass legislation that will target criminals, stop the smuggling of firearms into Canada, and go after those who illegally acquire firearms and apologize to legal firearms owners in Canada. I'm proud to present this petition. Thank you, Madam Speaker, and thank you to over a quarter million Canadians for standing up for what's right. Now, I particularly like the part where she says apologize to Canadians. Um, this, this infringement on our rights is, is something to bear witness to. Uh, this, this runaway frickin' train wreck of a fascist liberal government that we are currently living under is unbelievable. <clears throat> let's, just, uh, let's just add a bit more to this because um, the article goes a little bit deeper. Conservative Party MP Michelle Rempel-Garner presented the largest petition in parliamentary history before the House of Commons on Thursday. <clears throat> Excuse me. Petition E-2574 calls for the federal government to immediately end its gun ban and pass new laws that target criminals instead of gun owners. The petition was first opened on May 5, 2020, and by its closing date last September, the petition was signed by 230,905 people. Um... In 2020, the Trudeau government issued an order in council to ban over 1,500 types of rifles. The, de the decision effectively bypassed any democratic debate in the House of Commons. Last month, the Liberals expanded their overreaching gun legislation to, to even include replicas of any guns included in the sweeping ban. Update the criminal code to ensure that any device, including an unregulated air gun that looks exactly like a conventional regulated firearm, is prohibited for the purposes of import, export, sale, and transfer. For an in-depth look into Canada's fight for legal firearm rights, tune in to True North News documentary series, Assaulted, Justin Trudeau's War on Gun Owners. The series, which is hosted and produced by Andrew Lawton, seeks to look beyond politics into how the everyday lives of law-abiding Canadians are impacted by the Liberal government's crackdown on their rights. I have no problems uh, reading the... Um, uh, the promotions of some of these videos by uh, really stand-up uh, media outlets like True North News. So if you're wondering why I go in and read those too, it's just simply because uh, if it's information that you're looking for, I'm definitely going to share it. Um, <clears throat> you guys probably, for those of you that have li been listening to the show for quite some time, probably know my, my thoughts on petitions. I think they're kind of useless, but... It, nevertheless, it's it's important to see how many people are are standing up. Me being one of them, probably a lot of you signed this exact position uh, petition uh, against this fascist overreach. Not even really addressing what the problems are. And then don't forget, like after this this sweeping gun ban came in, the liberals turned around and lessened uh, basically penalties for um, using illegal firearms. So what, like what? You know, you can't even make sense of this runaway train liberal frickin' disaster that we've got going on right now. But <clears throat> keep in mind, it's still looking like these, these yin-yangs are probably going to call an election in a few months. Because, let's be real, it's probably their best chance at winning uh, another four years is right now. Before inflation catches up with uh, this disastrous COVID spending spree that started way before COVID even even was a was a thought in anybody's head these this idiot prime minister or crime minister that we got handing out billions of dollars in heavy air quotes foreign aid all over the world which is <clears throat> just a fancy way of saying money laundering to all his friends and and uh, pedophile buddies <clears throat> allegedly um <clears throat> 
We haven't covered the gun thing for a while, and uh, I think we'll probably get that into the next few shows. We'll, we'll catch you guys up with what CCFR is doing. We'll see how the the uh, the case is going. I think right now we're just waiting to, waiting to uh, see how everything plays out, and uh, but we'll just keep that. Obviously, it's it's in the forefront of my mind because I uh, I have the guns. I have some of the guns that they banned uh, with their fascist overreach and. Uh, <laughs> Uh, yeah <clears throat> they're never getting those guns <laughs> especially especially a government like this you know that hands 600 million dollars to the Clinton Foundation yeah I'm good I'm good you know some of those guns are are <laughs> they have one purpose and that is to fight government government tyranny so let's move on to another topic here friends <clears throat> Okay, we have one more COVID death that I want to cover before we get into the uh, American election fraud news. And uh, this came to us by way of Chef, and uh, we're a little late reporting it, Chef, but uh, as you know, there's been a couple interviews that have kind of pushed me back on some of the topics that I wanted to cover. But uh, this comes to us by way of uh, WCHS ABC 8 Eyewitness News. So keep in mind that there's probably a bit of a cover here uh, when we go through this, and I'm sure we'll probably pick it apart. But anyway, the title reads, Utah woman, 39, dies four days after second dose of COVID-19 vaccine autopsy ordered. This is by Heidi, Heidi Hatch, and it came to us March 10th, 2021. Salt Lake City, during a KUTV investigation into COVID-19 vaccine side effects and where to report them, we found four reported deaths filed by Utah families and their caregivers to the CDC vaccine adverse effects reporting system or VAERS. Utah's Office of the, of the Medical Examiner issued a statement on Thursday, March 18th, stating no deaths in Utah have been caused by COVID-19 vaccines to date. <laughs> really? <clears throat> One case stood out, a 39-year-old single mom from Ogden who died four days after her second dose of the Moderna COVID-19 vaccine. Her family, who is now waiting on an autopsy, held a celebration of life for her this past weekend. Cassidy Currell, by all accounts, was healthy, happy, and had more money and had more energy, not money, than just about anyone else around her. Her family told uh, Two News she had no known health problems prior or pre-existing health conditions. Alfred Hawley, a retired Air Force Base fighter pilot is a military man who has known risks and loss his entire life. He has taken it all in stride until now. This is her father. An hour before his daughter's celebration of life this past Saturday, he sat down to talk about his baby girl, the one who was all, the one who always wore makeup to cover up the freckles he loved so much. I'm at a state in my life where I am okay with that emotion, he said as he wiped a tear from his cheek. Not the first and won't be the last. She is the one who promised to take care of me. The death of his youngest daughter came out of nowhere in a year where this family has already suffered unimaginable grief, with three funerals before Curl's in the past 370 days. Four days after Curl's second dose of the COVID-19 vaccine, she was gone, dead before most of the family could even say their goodbyes. Holly woke up that Thursday morning to his daughter asking for help. She came in early and said her heart was racing and she felt like she need to get she needed to get to the emergency room, Holly said. Curl and her nine-year-old daughter, uh, Amelia, lived with her parents. They'd been one family under the same roof since Amelia was born. Mom and dad and grandma and grandpa always clo were always close by when we were needed. Holly, now retired, spent a lot of time with his girls. Curl, he said, got sick right away. Soreness at the shot location, then started getting then started getting sick, started complaining that she was drinking lots of fluids but couldn't pee, and then felt a little better the next day. It was her second shot. The first came with a sore arm but no real side effects or issues. Curl was the first in the family to get the vaccine. She was a surgical tech for several local plastic surgeons, and the vaccine was part of the job. She stepped up to get the shot without hesitation, her family said. She was absolutely fine with getting it. In fact, she told all of us, it's fine. You guys should all get it. Curl's older sister, Kristen, often confused as her twin, lives in Arizona. The distance didn't matter much. They visited often and talk on the phone every day. 
The day her sister got the second COVID-19 shot was a normal one from their conversation throughout conversation throughout the day, Kristen said. They had gone shopping, she was fine, then she started feeling not so great that evening, she said. Kristen said they were not worried about her sister because everyone from her work had flu-like symptoms, so we thought it was just normal. Curl got the second shot on February 1st while she was in bed all day Tuesday and Wednesday. It wasn't until Thursday morning she knew something was wrong. She woke up early, got ready, and she asked her dad to drive her to the local emergency room where they arrived at 7 a.m. As soon as they walked in the door, Curl was throwing up. Minutes later, questions were raised about what was making her so sick. Her dad recalls doctors asking questions after questions. Is there any explanation? Holly said... He told them Curl just had her second shot. They did a blood test immediately, came back, and said she was very, very sick. Her liver was not functioning, Holly said. Kristen, still in Arizona, knew her sister had gone to the hospital, but the speed of what was happening was so unexpected she was thinking her sister would get an IV with fluids and be back at home within an hour. Holly, at the ER, was with his daughter, knew they were not going home anytime soon. It was a total shock. And I was even afraid to tell my wife, he said. It was a call he did not want to make. Curl was flown to uh, Intermountain Medical Center in Murray, a trauma center where they had the ability to do transplants if needed. Her liver was failing and a transplant and a transplant doctors believed her best option would be her best option at survival. That's when Kristen got the call her sister was being transferred. She jumped on the first flight to Utah but when she landed, she was not allowed in the hospital because of COVID-19 protocols. She waited with Curl's daughter, Amelia, hoping for a miracle. Both of Curl's parents volunteered to donate a portion of their liver. They knew if they were not a match, they could be part of a trade where someone else who was a match could help their daughter. They never got the chance to offer the life-saving gift. Doctors were doing everything they could to get Curl stable, but nothing seemed to work. Holly said his daughter's liver... His daughter's liver kidneys and heart shut down holly who was his daughter who was with his daughter when she died said it didn't make much sense she was ha healthy happy and active the greatest mum you ever saw in your life and she was so sick that in less than 12 hours in intubated and on life support she died he said 30 hours after they arrived in the emergency room an autopsy was recommended by doctors and the family agreed Curl's body was moved to Utah State Medical Examiner in Taylorsville, where a full autopsy was performed. The State Medical Examiner's office cannot comment on the case because of privacy laws, but spoke to 2N News about the autopsy. About an autopsy would provide answers to family reporting deaths post-vaccine. Dr. Eric Christensen, Utah's chief medical examiner, said providing vaccine proving vaccine injury as cause of death almost never happens well imagine that did the vaccine cause this i would think that would be very hard to demonstrate in an autopsy he said <clears throat> christensen can think of only one instance where you would see a vaccine as the cause of death on an official autopsy report and that would be an immediate cause of anaphylaxis one where a person received the vaccine and died almost instantaneously he said Short of that, it would be difficult for us to definitively say this was the vaccine. A more likely result would be a lack of answers or an incomplete autopsy. An autopsy, he said, can provide answers to a family when no disease or red flags are found. As Christensen explained, that we don't see a, comp uh, a competing cause of death, the lack of answers may help them understand if the vaccine was a possible cause. An autopsy could also identify a cause of death the family was unaware of, where doctors find undiagnosed pneumonia, cancer, or unknown heart conditions. Christensen said there are many people, even young people, walking around with major health issues they simply don't know about. Curl, according to the f her family, had no known medical conditions. Her past medical records were likely used to in her death investigation, which could take as long as three months, depending on what initial reports and toxicology reports show. Curl's family is hopeful that they will have answers, but they know the reality that they may never know for sure what claimed their daughter's and sister's life. Kristen said when she looks back, her sister was fine the day she got the shot and then everything changed. Her father agreed, said Curl was 
healthy and good. Then she took the shot. He points to Occam's razor, where the simplest answer is m- most mostly likely correct. Until he gets other data, Holly said he must believe there was something with the shot. Curl's death will leave a major void. Her nine-year-old daughter will continue living with her grandparents. The young girl's father, a civil servant and, a, and member of the National Guard, travels for work and has served several tours overseas. Her family has set up a memorial, memorial account in Cassidy Curl's name. Oh, man. Just, uh, it's just sad. It's sad. Uh, you know, uh, another beautiful young lady's life taken from this vaccine. I'll just go ahead and say it's the vaccine. You, you, there's no reason I would be reporting it if I didn't think that, right? But I don't know how many of these we got to see. Obviously, there's just, you know, with the amount of uh, countries that have halted it because of deaths, I think it was, what, all the way up to 17? Some of them have reinstated it now. Because, you know, the pharmaceutical companies have probably found a way to avoid blaming the vaccination. So they're just going to keep pumping people full of this fucking thing and killing more people. But that's not really what concerns me. You know, we listened to Dr. Vernon Coleman together on the last episode. And what really concerns me is what happens when these these uh, people that have permanently altered their DNA uh, with these with these mRNA gene therapies, what happens when they are exposed to... Um, the the actual COVID virus after. <clears throat> you know, it's supposed to fight off the original strand, so maybe it'll work. Or it's supposed to teach your body how to fight off the original strand. Is the whole theory behind this gene therapy that they're pumping into people uh, in a human experiment using the public. But uh, what happens if you get exposed to a variant? What happens if you get uh, exposed to the flu? And your body only knows how to fight off the original COVID strand. It it builds proteins to fight just that specific strand and you get the flu. What happens if you get the flu, then pneumonia and your body just can't fight, fight it off because it's trained to fight only one thing. Like these are the questions that we need to be asking, you know, like, uh, and it should be coming from medical professionals, not everyday average folks like you and me, you know, just reading and reading and reading and taking in all this information that we're taking in about this fricking thing and actually asking these questions. Well, we know why it's not medical professionals because they put their their whole career is on the line if they ask questions like that. Look at what they're doing to call Dr. Culvinder Gill right now, just for, just for telling you that there's actual uh, natural cures or therapeutics that can cure COVID and we don't need this fricking vaccine. Look what they're doing to her right now. And anybody else that spoke out about it, like Dr. Vernon Coleman, they demonize these people and uh, basically discredit them in every way, shape and form until the point that they're referred to as quacks. And these are actually your most qualified people. Like when you start paying attention to the people that have spoke out against this vaccine, we're talking about the top scientists, top doctors around the world warning you, not to mention pharmaceuticals own people uh, blowing the whistle on this. They, they just don't have the moral capability of going along with genocide, with vaccine genocide. So when you have people from these pharmaceutical companies telling you that this could spell disaster, um, you know, that should be, that should take, take warning, right? <clears throat> anyway, let's get into the American election news here, my friends. Actually, I just want to mention, because um, I did mention the, the two Michaels, uh, uh, story. Um, I'm waiting before we actually report on that. You guys know what's going on with it. Um, and I have a bit of an outdated article here because we, I do know that the one trial of Michael Korvig, I believe, no, of Spaver has started. So I'm going to wait before I report on that until I have some actual, uh, you know, you guys know that the trials are beginning and you guys know what this is all about. So uh, I'm going to wait before we report on that until we get some news on how these guys are actually faring in the Chinese court system, which is probably a kangaroo court system. Uh, They're charged with espionage. I'm sure you guys are aware of that, which, uh, whatever. It was a retaliation for uh, arresting the Huawei executive that was in Vancouver, um, Meng Wangzo or Wanzo. And she's like living the high life. She's got like a penthouse and she's, I, I believe she's just got an ankle bracelet and she's living great in Vancouver. Meanwhile, our guys are probably in the worst Chinese prison imaginable, uh, you can just imagine the conditions that they're living under. 
Anyway, let's swing south of the line here, my friends. Okay, this first article comes to us by way of the BL, and the title reads, Michigan reinstates voting fraud case following forensic probe. Okay, after the county clerk dismissed a voting fraud lawsuit in, Mich- in Michigan, a federal judge reinstated it. Judge Kevin Elsenheimer El- El- released two separate orders this week ordering the a- Antrim County election fraud case to be immediately reinstated, finding that the clerk's non-service dismissal was inappropriate. After it was revealed that more than 5,000 votes for Donald Trump, President Donald Trump, were reportedly flipped to Joe Biden, Antrim County gained national coverage. Jocelyn Benson, Michigan's Democrat Secretary of State, blamed the possible vote transfer on a clerical error. I do think I know what happened, Cheryl Guy, Antrim County Clerk, said. I believe that when we got a new flash drive, we should have pulled all of our jurisdictions back and reprogrammed them. We did not do that. Guy has been charged with receiving and keeping court documents and has been named as a material witness in the case. Meanwhile, critics have raised concerns about another case of voter fraud in the state, in which one county had more registered voters than eligible residents. The reality is that Michigan voter rolls are inflated and they have been inflated for some time, according to the Honest Election Project's executive director, Jason Sneed. In fact, a year ago, we did data analysis that pointed out the state uh, pointed out to state officials that there are that there are records in a number of countries counties sorry that have more uh, voters registered than voting age eligible citizens in those counties attorneys now have until april 8th to finish their discoveries with a settlement conference scheduled for may 11th so that's just one little bit. Um, and the next thing I want to do is cover a, uh, it's it's a fairly long article, um, but it's by Molly, Molly Hemingway, which is one of the best writers I've ever read. And uh, the title reads, media's entire Georgian narrative is fraudulent, not just the fabricated Trump quotes. The fake quotes, bad as they are, are just one of many ways the media has done a horrible job of covering election disputes in the state. Um, the Washington Post was busted for publishing fabricated quotes from an an anonymous source attributing them to a sitting president and using those quotes as a basis to speculate the the president committed a crime the the inevited Donald Trump quotes which related to a fight over election integrity in Georgia were cited in Democrats impeachment brief and during the Senate impeachment trial but the fake quotes, bad as they are, are just one of many ways the media has done a horrible job covering election disputes in the state. According to the media narrative, the Georgia presidential election was perfectly run as any election in history. And anyone who says otherwise is a liar. To push that narrative, the media steadfastly downplayed, ignored, or prejudicedly pre- dismissed legitimate concerns with how Georgia had run its November 2020 elections and complains about and complaints about it. That posture was the complete opposite of how they were reporting on Georgia's elections prior to Democrats performing well in them. In the months prior to November, some media sounded, some media sounded a bit like Lynn Wood when they wrote about Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger Dominion voting systems, legal challenges in the states, and Georgia election integrity in general. Georgia's election mess, many problems, plenty to blame, few solutions for November, read the June 10th, 2020 New York Times headline of a story by Richard Fawcett and Reed Epstein about the disastrous primary election in June that was plagued by glitches, but Democrats saw a systematic effort to disenfranchise voters. Citing irregularities with absentee ballots and oddities at polling stations, the authors said Georgia's embattled election officials were dealing with a voting system that suffered a spectacular collapse. They said it was unclear whether the problems were caused by mere uh, bungling or intentional effort by Raffensperger and his fellow Republicans in the Secretary of State's office. Georgia's troubled system would be exacerbated by voting by mail and increased burden of handling absentee ballots, the article said. The trouble that plunged Georgia's voting system into chaos was related to its Dominion voting systems, which some election experts had been sounding the alarm bells for about 
for months. Indeed, they had. Georgia's Georgia likely to plow ahead with buying insecure voting machines, wrote Politico's Eric Geller in March 19th about the plan to replace voting machines. He said cybersecurity experts, election integrity advocates, and Georgia Democrats had all warned about the security problems of the new machines, which would be electronic but also spit out marked paper ballots. Security experts warned that an intruder can corrupt the machines and alter the barcode-based ballots without voters or election officials realizing it, he wrote. It was alleged that a meaningful audit was impossible. When Georgia picked Dominion voting systems in August 2019, the Atlanta Journal-Constitution warned, Critics say the system will not will still be vulnerable to hacking, citing high-profile hacks of Capital One and Equifax as well as the online attacks on Atlanta and Georgia courts. Election officials will have to be on guard against malware, viruses, stolen passwords, and Russian interference. Oh yeah, you gotta have the Russians. The article continu- continued. Yes, Russians. Georgia in uproar over voting meltdown. The New York Times proclaimed that in June 9th, in a June 9th, 2020 story, citing problems with Dominion voting systems and Raffensperger's management of the election, machines brought, bought by the state last year were instantly controversial. Security experts said they were insecure. Privacy experts worried that the screens could be seen for nearly 30 feet away. Budget hawks balked at the price tag, and one of Dominion Voting System's lobbyists, Jared Samuel Thomas, has deep connections to Governor Brian Kemp, the Republican who defeated Miss Abrams in 2018, the article read. Washington Post went with a went with as Georgia rolls out new voting machines for 2020 worries about election security persists which said election security experts said the new the state's newest voting machines also remain vulnerable to potential intrusions or malfunctions and some view the paper records they produce as insufficient if a verified audit of the vote is needed If critics on the right were to restate these complaints now, it is likely that tech platforms would ban them or otherwise constrain their free discussion. The same media outlets would likely characterize these claims and concerns as unfounded. Democrats use various various strategies to implement changes in voting law in order to limit election integrity or make it more difficult for election overseers and observers to detect election fraud. One of the approaches is termed sue and settle. Perkins Coie, the law firm that also ordered what became the Russian collusion hoax against Trump in 2016, runs an extremely well-funded and highly coordinated operation to alter how U.S. elections are run. The firm will sue states and get them to make agreements that alter their voting practices. Mark Ellis, well-known for his role in the Russian collusion hoax and other Democrat operations, runs the campaign to change voting laws and practices to favor Democrats. Perkins Coie billed the Democrat Party at least $27 million for its efforts to radically change voting laws ahead of the 2020 election, more than double what they charged Hillary Clinton and the Democratic National Committee for similar work in 2016. Ellis was sanctioned in federal court just yesterday for some shenanigans related to Texas election integrity to a Texas election integrity case. In March, Raffensperger voluntarily agreed to settle in federal court with various Democratic groups, which had sued the state over its rules for absentee voting. The end result was a dramatic altercation in how Georgia conducted the 2020 election. Republicans were not party to the agreement despite their huge interest in the case. The agreement explicitly states that neither Raffensperger nor the Democratic groups who sued him take a position on whether the laws and procedures being changed were constitutional or not. What the fuck? You know, like, just just listen to that. Like, they're covering, they're not allowing this information to come out. My God. Like, how is this even legal? Like, look at this freaking upside-down clown world that we're living in. Like, this information that is basically integral to, like, crucial to knowing what the hell happened in Georgia. Well, we're just not going to let anybody see it. And that's legal? Democrats' high-powered attorneys introduced several significant changes, such as the opportunity to, to cure ballots. That means when an absentee ballot comes with, comes with problems that, that would typically lead to it being trashed, 
the voter is instead given a chance to cure or correct the ballot. It also says Democrats would offer training and guidance on signature verification to county registrars and absentee ballot clerks. Most importantly, the settlement got rid of any meaningful signature match. The laws had previously required signatures to match the signature on file with Georgia Voter Registration Database, but the settlement allowed the signature match to match any signature on file, including the one on the absentee ballot application. That meant that fraudulently obtained ballots would easily have signature match and no way to detect the fraud. The ballot also could be rejected if a majority of registrars, deputy registrars, and ballot clerks agreed to it. Another burden that that made it easier to just let all ballots through without scrutiny. It made a huge difference in how many ballots were rejected. Raffensperger's decision to voluntarily agree to such dramatic change in the rules of the game without input from the Republican Party of Georgia, much less the Republican National Committee, angered many Republicans, including Senator Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, as they learned about it following the November 2020 election. Other Republicans felt harmed felt he harmed election integrity by mailing out millions of absentee ballots application ballot applications because of health concerns related to COVID-19. This brings us to election day. Because so many people had voted by mail or otherwise early, the in-person voting was fairly routine with just a few problems here and there. But one major problem was the counting was with counting votes. A major procession center in Fulton, the state's most populous county, claimed at one point to have trouble counting ballots in the evening because of a burst pipe or even some officials said a water main break. It turned out it was actually a minor, minor urinal leak that had occurred that morning and hadn't really disrupted anything. Things got even weirder. That night, an election official curiously announced that they were closing up shop for the evening even though there were tons of ballots left to count. As workers closed their counting operations, many began to leave. The news media and other election observers left. The news media reported they'd been told ballot counting would stop. But even even though uh, Fulton County publicly said they were stopping the count, they didn't stop counting ballots. Republicans were already frustrated that they weren't near enough to properly observe the counting and were outraged and cried foul when they discovered they had been misled and encouraged to leave. Election officials denied wrongdoing. A video came out corroborating the claims of Republican poll watchers and the media, and the media about being told the counting w- counting would stop. The video also showed ballots being pulled out from under a table and other suspicious actions that led many observers to question the integrity of the operation. Fulton County and Georgia Secretary of State officials poo-pooed the concerns or claimed without providing a report or substantive a substantive rebuttal that they looked into the situation and found nothing problematic. Well, you just have to be a person with a pair of eyes to watch that video and tell, and you could tell everybody that, hey, there's an issue here. Hey, we're going to scroll down because uh, we are running out of time and this article is very, very long. Uh, a serious lawsuit is filed. While conspiracy theorists about election fraud, fraud went wild during this time, ranging from the New York Times claim that there was no election fraud anywhere in the entire country to dramatic claims of global conspiracy involving Venezuela and voting machines, The Trump campaign's official claim in its lawsuit filed on December 4th, 2020 was sober and serious. They weren't alleging foreign meddling or outside hacking as the New York Times, Washington Post, Political and the Atlanta Journal Constitution warned just months earlier were serious concerns. The Georgia Supreme Court had previously ruled that challengers to an election don't need to show definitive fraud with particular votes. Just that there was enough irregular ballots or violations of election procedures to place doubt in the result. Judges never want to overturn the results of an election, but under Georgia law, the remedy for showing enough problems to cast doubt was that a new election must be held. One was already scheduled for early January for Senate runoff races. Trump's lawsuit argued that it appeared votes had come from 2,560 felons, 66,247 underage registrants, 2,423 people who were not on the state's voter rolls, 4,926 voters who had registered in another state after they registered in Georgia, making them ineligible, 395 people who cast votes in another state from, uh, from this, for the same election, 
15,700 voters who had filed national change of address forms without re-registering, 40,279 people who had moved moved counties without re-registering, 1,043 people claimed the physical impossibility of a P.O. box as their address, 98 people who registered after the deadline, and among others, 10,315 people who were deceased on election day, 8,718 of whom who had been registered as dead before their votes were accepted. That one alone should have done it. Like, I, you know, like if you've had any faith in the U.S. court system, that right there, all you would have needed to say is, hey, 10,315 dead people voted to a judge and prove it to them. Look at all these names. These are all dead people. They voted on this day. They were dead. <laughs> uh, they had been registered dead before their votes were accepted. Like that right there should have done it. Unlike so much of Trump's campaign legal efforts, outside observers agreed that the lawsuit was serious. But as legitimate as the lawsuit was, it entered a Kafka-esque world where it couldn't get heard. You know, uh, you kind of get the point here, but what uh, Molly Hemingway was doing was a great job of pointing out how the left, um, the left media was reporting on the election fraud or the potential for election fraud prior to their puppet candidate winning. And so we don't need to rehash all the all the details of stuff that we've gone over numerous times on this show. So I just wanted to uh, just cover it because it's it's get, it's coming back into the news cycle. Maybe not the mainstream news. They're just going to pretend that everything's legit and don't worry about it. But it's coming back into the news cycles for independent media, which is a good sign. Uh, and the fact you've got judges recalling um, voter fraud cases in Michigan means that uh, Biden's not out of the water yet. Like this 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 is serious for him. Like. <clears throat> this might not work out in the end, right? So obviously we're keeping a close eye on this stuff because as you guys know, I do I do not accept the 2020 results uh, at all. Uh, I'm sure none, none of you do either, but uh, that's why we covered all this stuff. Anyway, that brings us to the end of the show, my friends. So as always, if you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Facebook at Canadian Patriot Radio. Use the message button. It comes directly to me. Uh, if you prefer email, it's CanadianPatriotRadio at gmail.com. And if you are on Telegram, I uh, recommend searching this page, t.me backslash CanadianPatriotRadio, and you can join the ongoing conversation on Telegram. Thanks for joining us again, my friends, for another episode of Canadian Patriot Radio. And until next time, with all thy sons, command. <laughs> joining us for another episode of Canadian Patriot Radio. CPR is not filmed before a live studio audience. If you like the show, friends, make sure you give us a thumbs up and share us on all your social media platforms. Until next time, take care.